Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16 through chapter 2, verse 3, and then we're going to jump to chapter 3, verse 14 to the end of the book. God's Word declares, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to Him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words for a long time. Their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand... Beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen? All right, we'll start with that again. This morning's message quickly turned into a two-part message. Over the course of this week, I did not anticipate that, but I have been looking forward to the passage before us, and I have uh, pressed this into really just one verse. Uh, We're going to introduce that verse and some of its teaching uh, here shortly, Um, but it's something that uh, I think is pressing on the church today, and we are largely oblivious to it on too many levels. So this morning I want to talk to you about your food. And I'm going to talk a little bit about your physical food and what we've done to it. Because largely what we've done to your physical food, we have done to your spiritual food. So we're going to make that transition. So we're going to talk about your bread that you buy at the store usually. And what it's made of or not made of, and what we have done to improve it. We go and we see words on the package that talk about it being enriched. 
And we think, wow, this is enriched bread. This is going to be so good for my children because it's enriched. So here's how enrichment happens, that they are allowed to put that label on there, that it has been enriched by these certain vitamins and nutrients. And it happens by them taking a natural product called wheat and grinding it up and adding a product to it um, called bleach. And we bleach out the flour. And what they don't tell you is that when they do that, there are about 30 to 40 minerals, vitamins, nutrients that are bleached out of your flour. All of which are beneficial to you. And so, I don't know how many of you add bleach to many of your recipes. But that is what they do to the flour you buy at the store and to the things made of that flour that is in your store shelves. So they bleach out everything there under the guise of saying we want to kill all the bad things and it gives it an opportunity to last a little longer on the shelf. Uh, Not necessarily the bread, although it does help the bread last a lot longer, um, but the flour itself so that they can store it before they use it. And then after bleaching out 30 to 40 nutrients out of your flour, they're going to make your bread out of, They come back and take seven vitamins and spray into it. And by doing so, they're telling you that they are enriching it. That is the enrichment part. And so the first thing they do is they extract everything God put into wheat and flour. They they, they bleach it out, a poison to us. They do that to it. And so man takes out the 40 to 50 nutrients that God put into it, and then we enrich it by adding seven. And we think we've done you a big favor, and we are sure we're doing great things for our children. Um, After all, the word wonder is on the package right there, right? It's wonder bread. Seven nutrients been added to it. They didn't tell you they took out 40 to 50 before they ever started enriching it. And, of course, that's white bread. And then some of you mommies got really interested in having a healthy diet for your children. So you went to the wheat bread and sure that that would help and the whole grains and things like that. But the same process was largely done, just the germ was included. The wheat germ was included. But the process of extracting and then enriching, quote-unquote, was still gone on. And then they add some preservatives so it could stay on the shelf a little bit longer. And all of that so you could have a product that you think is nutritious and helpful uh, and something you feel good to serve to your family. Um, back in the day, they used to use iodized salt and add iodine to it because it helps bread to rise. Well, then they found out iodine started getting expensive. And by the way, iodine is something that your body really needs. It is a very beneficial nutrient for your body. But iodine is a little expensive. And then they found out that bromine produces the same rising effect as iodine. So they replaced iodine in your bread with bromine, which your body does not like at all. But it's cheaper. But most of us didn't notice. And if it weren't for my doctor telling me, I wouldn't have known anything about that. Actually, it was my wife's doctor, 
I wouldn't have known that, and I wouldn't have known how important iodine was to our makeup. All of this so that we can get something that we are sure is a beneficial product. And so we went from having a white bread and going to something more nutritious, wheat bread. But if any of you have ever been to my house when I've baked real bread, you can tell the difference pretty quick. The flavor, the texture, everything. But also the value of that bread. And what we've done to bread, and I haven't even gotten into GMO foods and any of that, just basic bread, we've done similarly to our milk, and we've homogenized it, pasteurized it, killed everything in it that God put there that is a benefit, and took out some of the cream as well to make it 2% or skim or low-fat, because that's healthier for us, we were told. And we weren't told about all the damage it does to the milk itself and making it less digestible for us. And again, if we compared those products side by side, you would say, oh my, why aren't we drinking raw? Some of my family got some raw milk a little bit ago and they were like, oh, it's so much taste. It's sweeter, it lasts longer, and even when it turns bad, it tastes good. Curdled raw milk tastes good. Can you believe that? That's how they make cheese, by the way. Well, no. But you see, man is sure that they can improve on God's design. Whenever we do that, we never improve it. We always destroy it. But then we say we have enhanced it. Now, that's a little nutrition lesson for your body. And really, relatively speaking, it's not that important of a lesson, to tell you the truth. It's the quality of your life and the length of your days is going to be affected, certainly the wellness of your body. But that's all very temporal. And really, um, has some limited value to you. But I want to help you understand that what we have done to our physical food, basic elements like bread and milk, we have largely done to our spiritual diet. We've bleached out all the nutrients. We have cooked it out. We have destroyed it. We have then reinvented it, rebuilt it up, and call it by these extraordinary names... And really all it ends up being is the doctrine of men and not the truth from God. And if you think this is something we've only done in recent years, you haven't read the Scriptures very well because Paul was dealing with it, Peter was dealing with it in the first century. But what we have come to uh, in this age is that this is the norm in Christianity today, not the aberration Paul and Peter were both saying, listen, among you there are going to be some false teachers, even as there were some false prophets among Israel. Um, But yet we are also warned by Paul and Timothy and other places that in the end days, the prevalent teaching will be false. 
that will be drained of everything that God wants it to communicate. We'll be inserting man-made philosophies and ideas to such a degree that Paul calls them fables. That's right. Fiction. But they'll be presenting it as God's Word. And Paul recognizes the Corinthians were setting themselves up to fall to just such individuals. And now we have it being normative in our church to such a degree, in churches, the capital C church, to such a degree that most of us can't listen without grasping the fact that we are listening to a poison that has leached out everything of value from the story of Jesus, has placed some sugar in there so that it will be palatable to you, and added a few drops of enrichment to help your life. Just put a few how-tos before that. Here's ten ways to help you to, you know, in these 40 days you're going to set the thing, the world on fire in your life and these kinds of activities. They're going to enrich you when we have sucked out all the nutrients that God intended to enrich us spiritually. Let me read the verse we're going to focus on this week, next, and perhaps, I don't know, the rest of the year. Um, Corinthians chapter 11. Let's read verse 1 through 4. 4 is being our key verse. It says, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me. Why is Paul going to all this extent to establish his authority and to beat down the false authority of those we studied last week? Here's why. Verse 2, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. Wow. Paul says, listen, the reason I have to establish my authority and expose the falseness of their authority is because I have a, I have a commission, and that commission is, I want to present you to Jesus Christ. And he talks about a chaste virgin, that is, that you're pure. That even as we want to give our, a pure daughter into marriage, so we want to give a pure church to Christ. Well, how do we do that? Paul says, well, we need to warn you about the, to use the same illustration, the womanizers out there that are trolling for you. There are those who want, by craftiness, to corrupt your minds, to deceive you, to trick you into thinking that what they are peddling is something of value, something of nutritional value. benefit to you, that it is the real deal. And Paul uses three phrases here that are, frankly, very frightening to think about, that they come to you, and we don't even 
put up our guard. That there are people who come and they preach a different Jesus. There are more than one Jesuses out there. Did you know that? And I will contend to you that most of the Jesuses, in fact, all but one, are disingenuous. They are a different Jesus than the one portrayed right here in the Scriptures. At my conference this week, we were confronted with the Baptist body, both Southern and Northern Baptist conventions, and, and what was coming in through largely our institutions, not through our churches, but the institutions like our schools um, and, and by that colleges and seminaries, by some of our or, uh, mission organizations and things like that, that were infiltrating those who denied fundamentals of our faith. And this is before the word fundamentalist was ever coined. They came in and they started to undermine, guess what? The deity of Jesus Christ. They came in and began to undermine the miracles recorded. They began to undermine the scriptures themselves. They came and taught another Jesus. They were teaching it to our pastoral students that we send out of our good churches, send them to the college. They get this from a professor who has no accountability to a local church, and they start being taught a different Jesus. One that wasn't fully divine, one that was, and, and the scripture aren't inerrant, and, we're, and that there are some mistakes in here, and we started undermining all of this. And the church, for 50 years, well, 40 years, was largely oblivious. And in that time period of all of our preacher boys being sent off to school, being taught another Jesus, being given another spirit and a different gospel, it began to penetrate when they started coming out into our churches. Oh, they towed the line for a little bit, but once they got a few credentials, once they got a following, then they came out with this new Jesus that wasn't fully divine. And the church has reacted against it. Out of that, we have the fundamentalist movement, which was coined by uh, an author uh, trying to identify this group that were all upset about this and trying to uh, stake themselves on fundamental truth and, and uh, fundamental practice. And so he says, we don't have a name for them, so we're going to call them the fundamentalists. And they, the war began. And that war was for what Paul is warring for here, a chaste virgin church. To guard the church from another Jesus, another spirit, and a different gospel. See, there are those that use the name Jesus, use all the same terminology we do, but they have filled them with totally different meaning. And I want to share with you that they are of Satan. Just like Satan craftily just twisted a little bit of God's word, deceived Eve, so these men craftily came into the church, sneakily, <laughs> that's a word, came in, twisted just a few things, contorted God's word here and there, which is the work of Satan himself. Let there be no 
doubt in your mind what I'm attributing this to. This is not just misguided men. If they were misguided, they, they wouldn't have been so sneaky about it. They knew what they were doing. They knew what they were teaching, that they were introducing another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel. A gospel, in some cases, easy believism, that all you have to do is believe in Jesus. I also, while I was in Phoenix, got to visit with Pastor Bailey, and he was asking me about some of this very stuff as well. He's like, you know, they say all you have to do, these people just keep telling me they believe in Jesus. And they quote Acts 16.31, believe. You know, all you have to do is believe. That's the only command there. Um, and I was like, well, let's make sure we understand which Jesus you have to believe in. Because I think Paul is very specific in saying the Lord Jesus Christ. Pastor Leachman went through that on Sunday nights very carefully with us, all those terms of what they mean. It means that this is Jesus, the man, yes, who died on Calvary's cross, yes, and rose again the third day, yes. But that's not sufficient. He's also the deliverer, the redeemer, the only way to have our sins covered. He is the Christ. But he is also Lord. That is our master, our king, the one to whom we owe all allegiance. We must obey if we call ourselves by his name. But they took out those aspects of Jesus. They stripped him down. And said, so just believe in the historical person. Just believe in Jesus as you understand him. Paul says, no, these are other Jesuses. And by the way, every Mormon tells you that believes in Jesus, right? Do they believe in the same Jesus we believe in? Absolutely not. But I want to share with you that that influence uh, isn't, is no longer and hasn't been for a hundred years been isolated to the cults. It has penetrated our churches extensively and more, even more concerning is that it has so penetrated our thinking that we do not distinguish truth from error among good conservative bodies today. We can't see the other Jesuses. We're blinded to them because we've never really met the real one. We don't recognize the real Spirit of God because we haven't seen him. We are pretty sure the charismatic community understands the Spirit of God, and they got one up on us. John MacArthur, who you know I don't agree with on a lot of things, has put out a series called Strange Fire, where he has just hammered the charismatic movement and said, listen, this is not of God, and it's time for us to quit calling him brethren, because they aren't. They have a different spirit. They have a different gospel. They have a different Jesus. And those guys on TBN and all of those are not ones we're going to associate with. And in fact, it's time we start to understand that they are the false teachers that Peter and Paul, here in our text today, talk about. And instead of trying to get cues from them on how to understand the Spirit's work in our life instead of from God's Word, we ought to be doing what he's finally done. And this is a big turnaround for him, by the way, from what he's said in the past. And said, this is a different Spirit. This is another Gospel. This is the error, and this is of Satan. 
to cap this off, and by the way, God's been very good to cap off my illustrations, and I'm going to get into what the true Jesus is. Um, this was in my mailbox this morning. Why I was in here this morning? Because I wasn't here yesterday. Nobody picked up the mail. So I went out and got the mail this morning. See, it does get delivered on Sundays if you just don't check it on Saturdays. This is from a school I graduated from. <clears throat> Not Cedarville. Um, I graduated from Grand Rapids Baptist Seminary and this college below them, uh, uh, associated with them is Cornerstone University. This is their magazine to tell me all the things they're proud of. I'm going to read to you an article called Not Your Grandma's Bible Study. I don't even know where I want to jump in here. Cornerstone University junior Tanner Ward, a resident assistant at Crawford Hall, says his biggest struggle when it comes to diving into God's Word is deciphering the many passages which are difficult to understand. I think Peter admitted that in our passage we read earlier, right? Some parts of Paul's writings are hard to understand. Let's go back there and read that again. Second Peter. Chapter 3. Verse 16, it says, So also in all his epistles, talking about Paul's writing, uh, speaking them of things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do the rest of the Scriptures. Peter recognized Paul's writing as Scripture. But he says, listen, yes, some of it's hard to understand, but the ones who have a hard time understanding it are what kind of, and, and abuse it, that, un, that window, are untaught and unstable people. Okay, we're going to keep reading. This is his quote from Tanner Ward, <clears throat> who's going to graduate from there 2015, Lord willing. It is easy to read passages like Romans 5 or Proverbs that are positive, uplifting, easy to digest passages. I don't know if he's read all of Romans 5, but anyway. It's more difficult for me to study a passage like Matthew 10, where Jesus says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Under quote. Given these issues, it is no wonder young people are reading less of the Bible. Professors at Christian colleges around the country are having to adjust curriculum, adjust curriculum based on the fact that many students are simply unaware of what is actually in the Bible. These are our Christian colleges. In addition, many students read Scripture in short bursts, rarely ever putting the pieces of Scripture narrative together to understand the larger story. Matthew Westerholm, dean of the chapel of the chapel at Cornerstone University, recognizes the issue. Students entering college know less and less about the Bible every year, so we really felt like we needed a a way to help them make connections between all of the individual pieces. In the mid-2000s, Randy Frazzi and Max Lucado, minister of Oak Hills Church in San Antonio, Texas, noticed the same problem and created, quote, the story. Have you seen the story on shelves? I'm so glad none of you have seen that. I hope you don't ever go out and buy one after we get done hearing about this. The story is a novelized version of the Scriptures. 
taking carefully selected verses from both the Old and New Testament, ordering them chronologically to create a vivid flowing narrative from beginning to end. The book is presented in a chapter-by-chapter form with rising action and climatic suspense, just like any popular Twilight or Hunger Games movie, except it's from the Bible. For 2013-14, for this school year, the staff at Cornerstone University are using the story to invite students to read through the Bible story together. The new program is offered to enhance students' biblical literacy. The program support of the funds, he goes on and talks about how it's going to happen and how they initiate it. I want to jump towards the end and see what they have to say. Having everyone in your immediate circle of friends studying from the same Bible facilitates discussions. So now the story is no longer what it really is. Now it's the Bible. The abbreviated, no doctrinal study, just narrative. They've taken out all the doctrine, stripped it down. However, this is the problem they're having. I'm not sure everyone will be willing to switch from their Bible of choice to the story. That could undermine the success of the study. Do you think we have a problem? Do you think we have another gospel? They have just done to God's word what they've been doing to your flour and to your milk for decades. They have stripped it of all of its real value to make it interesting. And then they come in and say, this is going to enrich your young people. And the biggest problem is if you send them to our college with a real Bible in their hands, that's going to get in our way. This is going to get in the way. The Bible sitting on your lap is going to get... This isn't... This isn't the... This is... I went to this school. We're not talking about the uh, most liberal factions that are out there. I can't imagine where they're at. This is supposed to be one of our conservative schools. Do we grasp maybe a little bit of how far down this road we really are that another Jesus and a different spirit and a different gospel is being propagated, not out there somewhere, but right here. Paul's warning and Peter's warning to the church has been largely ignored. And we are sure there's great benefit if we could just get people to read this narrative and because and they're used to these thrilling novels. And so let's turn the Bible into something more of a novel. Then people will read it more. How can that be bad? Because they don't get the truth. We've thinned out everything that might be hard to understand so they can just get the narrative from Genesis to Revelation with no truth. Really, no theology inserted. That's what we get. Why? 
we don't believe in the real Jesus. We don't have the Spirit of God. And the real gospel is getting lost in the shuffle. This is what fundamentalism is warring against. And this is where the church, and it's, this is an institution, I understand, this isn't a church, but this is when these young people graduate from there and they start entering our churches, what's the message they're bringing with them? If it's hard to understand, just cut it out. If, I, if it's not palatable to me, if I don't like what I hear, what it says, because it just goes against our social grain, then just exclude it. This is, I think many times you think I'm talking philosophically or that somewhere out there, this is the real war that we are engaged in that we stand oftentimes alone in, in this community. My poor son down in Portales has been going to churches. <laughs> he says, well, you feel good at the end of it, but I'm not sure that's a good thing, Dad. And he's not gone to anything but Baptist churches. He says, like, 20, 25-minute sermon and, and nothing meaty, nothing, it just makes you feel good. Why? Because we're sure that Joel Olstein has the ticket of how to share Christ. Let me share with you. Joel Olstein, another Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel. He's Satan's man. He's the serpent. That Paul warns us about, that Peter warns us about. Those individuals who want to take God's Word and strip it of all of its real truth, all of its power, all, all, all that can save us and redeem us and deliver us, and then they want to reconstruct it. And as they do so, they have done it in such a manner that it appeals to men. And we look at it and say, oh, this tastes so good. Oh, I could just eat so much of this, which is now they've told us that this is how they've designed snack foods. So the more you eat, the more hungry you get. They've figured out the chemistry of taste and flavor and between salt and sugar and how to manipulate those so that while you're eating those chips, you get hungrier. That explains why I can down a whole package of Oreos without even blinking an eye. And I go, oh, I ate the whole thing. How'd that happen? My wife comes out and says, a bag of chips disappeared. I was like, I don't know what to tell you. I got hungry. I ate it and I was hungrier. So I ate it all. That's what these men have done to the gospel. They've figured it out. That they can manipulate the chemistry of Christ and the chemistry of the gospel and of the Spirit so that it, it appeals to you and you think, oh, this is delicious. I'm going to keep eating this. And you keep eating it, keep eating it, keep eating it. And there's nothing of any nutritional value there, spiritually. And you're eating yourself to death. We are not 
talking about something that might happen down the road. We are not warning you that there's a little bit of this here and there. I'm telling you, you are drowning in it. Our speaker at the conference talked about a war, it wasn't a war, it was a little battle over a song um, back when I was a teenager and we had some preachers that said that they wouldn't let anyone in their pulpit speak who, if their youth group had ever sung this song, and I have to admit to you, my youth group sang the little song. <laughs> okay, so, sorry. But he says it wasn't a battle worth fighting over because it had no substance. It was fluff and the song came and it went and it was indicative of the late 60s and 70s, 70s particularly, and it just and now people don't sing it at all. But we were reacting to that, but it was fluff. He says the problem now is that people think all this fluffy stuff is substance. Because they haven't been fed meat. Ever. We are 130 years into the effect of a denial of the Scriptures and of the Jesus who bought us. And is wreaking havoc. And Paul says, listen, (laughs) if I'm entering into what sounds like folly, it sounds like I'm getting all upset over something that doesn't seem important. Why is this such a big deal to Paul that you know who you can trust with truth and who can't be trusted with truth? He's telling you, listen, this is why I got into this. This is why I am overreacting. I'm sure lots of Corinthians were why is Paul so adamant about this? What is his issue? He says, listen, I will overreact because here are the pitfalls that are coming. And it's not just the church of Corinth he wants to present to Christ. It's Desert Hills Baptist Church that he wants to present to Christ to. As a chaste virgin. That is, none of this other gobbledygook has captivated our spiritual attention. We have kept ourselves pure of it for the kingdom's sake. We will keep our noses in the Bible, the real Bible. All 66 books and all of it. We won't detract from it. We won't add to it. God's Word. Pure truth. And we will live it and stand against this. Because Paul says, once you have put up with them, and at the end of verse 4, we're going to talk a lot more about that next week, I think. Um, my time is quickly going. I want to get through verse 1 and 2. I have, this is just the introduction to verse 1 and 2. Um, at the end of verse 4, it says, you may well put up with it. And this is that crazy word that's so important to our society today. It's called tolerate it. And frankly, this church is half the size it should be because we won't put up with it. I won't tolerate it. 
I won't tolerate man-made error brought in to quote-unquote enrich our church. We have a richness that these men and their followers know nothing about. So we don't even put up with it. Paul's concern wasn't that they would be captivated by it, that they would be drowned in it, that they would follow it. His, his issue, he didn't want them to put up with it. Don't even let it in your midst. Don't let these people have a foothold. Don't let them have a word to be said. Don't let them in at all. Their destruction is waiting for them. Peter tells us, it's going to come. Don't you be a part of it just by association. And so, verse 1 says, please put up with a little folly. And he says, indeed, you do bear with me. You're, you're putting up with me. Uh, I'm going to have to do some more of this, and we're going to get into it later in this chapter, uh, the rest of chapter 11, of course, chapter 12, finishing up. And we're going to see this folly that he's going to talk about. And he's asking them to... There's more coming, folks. I'm going to get really excited about this. I'm going to do some things that I shouldn't have to do that I scratch my head and say, uh, why is this necessary? But it is, and you're going to have to put up with it uh, knowing my motives are pure. That it's not me that I want you to follow, but Jesus. I am not preparing you for my empire. I am preparing you for the empire of Christ. I am not making you my bride, but Christ. I am the one who matched you with Christ. I am not Christ to you. So he says, put up with it a little while longer, and I thank you that you've put up with it so far. You're still reading. <laughs> You're still here. And I know for many of you, you put up with it. And, and that's what you need to bear is the truth. And this is the exact opposite. And so he wants you to tolerate, please tolerate preachers who will come in and tell you the truth. Even if it makes you feel bad. Even if you're like, boy, he's just out there and he is really wound up today. Well, I am wound up today. I got this in the mail. On the perfect Sunday, by God's grace, put up with that. Just bear with it. And maybe you should rejoice that your pastor cares. I'm not here to make a message for you that makes you taste good to you. I want to prepare a message that is full of the pleasure of God. That it pleases Him. That he looks down and says, good job this morning. I don't really care if you think that. But I would pray that you think that. So Paul's desire here is that, listen, you're going to put up with one of two people. Because you can't put up with both. He says, you either put up with me, you bear me. You bear what I have to do to now treat you like children and reestablish my authority and the gospel that's along with it to understand my purposes. You either put up with me, and if you don't, here's what you are going to put up with, a different gospel. 
different spirit, another Jesus. You're going to be putting up with that. And let me share with you, church after church after church is making that disastrous choice. They would rather put up with this good-tasting, delicious, quote-unquote, enriched product than the real thing. They don't want to put up with this. We've had plenty of people leave this church because they didn't want to put up with the truth. What I preach here is, what I desire to preach here every Sunday is God's Word. And I pray regularly that it be, I be cleansed of my philosophy, my ideals, my interests. But we should all be praying that same prayer. Lord, purify this time in my life. That I don't put on a lens of what feels good, tastes good in my belief system and filter out anything pastor says against that grid. But that I open myself up to your truth. That you transform me instead of me transforming you. And that's what this is all about. Paul says, please bear this kind of preaching, this kind of a letter, this kind of instruction. Please put up with it. Because if you don't, You're putting yourself in a position of choosing to put up with people who are there to abuse the gospel, who are there to fill their own bellies, who are there with their own self-interest. And yes, it'll taste wonderful to you, but its spiritual nutrients are gone. There's no benefit to you. In fact, it'll destroy you. So please, bear with me a little. Lest you put up with and bear with error. That's the choice Paul lays out there. And that's why, yeah, sometimes we have to jump up and down and flex the little muscle that Paul does here. In chapter 10, he's going to do more in chapter 11 and into chapter 12. Why does he have to flex this kind of muscle about what God is doing in his life because people are putting up with too much error. And he's afraid. The word he uses in verse 2 is that he's jealous. I'm jealous for you. And this isn't, um, I'm, I'm jealous because you're with them instead of with me. But rather, this is that jealousy that says you belong to someone. This is God's kind of jealousy where God says, I'm a jealous God. In other words, you're my people, Israel, and I'm a jealous God. I'm not going to share you with anyone. It is the jealousy not of a, of a jilted boyfriend. It's the jealousy of a husband over his wife. She is my wife. How dare you take her for yourself? How dare you think to have a moral relationship with her? She's my wife. And Paul says, listen, this is the kind of jealousy that I have because I have it from God. You are God's wife. How dare you open yourself up and let any person come in and and share any Jesus and any gospel and any spirit with you. How dare you do that? Is this what we're ready to tolerate? We are tolerating it. We are tolerating. 
Because I know that you're hearing it. You're, I know you're exposing yourself to it. I know that it's entered into your thinking, your life, and it says, well, you know, that's pastor's opinion, and I got this other guy's opinion, I got this book's opinion, and I got this opinion, and you think you have the right to choose. And you're wrong. Well, you do have the right to choose. But there's going to be consequences to that choice. These are not equal choices for you to just select among, like you're ordering off a menu at a restaurant. There's only one way that leads to life. There's only one Jesus that redeems. There's only one gospel that saves. There's only one spirit that empowers and guarantees salvation. You choose wrongly. You choose death. And so Paul says, listen, I'm not the one you're betrothed to. I have this godly jealousy, but I'm the matchmaker. I'm the one that said, this one is to be your husband, you're to be his bride. And you're in this betrothed state, and to us, if you're engaged, you're not really, you know, know, engagements can be broken off pretty easily, but in the culture back then, to be betrothed was... uh, was very serious and and really only immorality could break off a betrothal, uh, which is why Mary and Joseph, as we come up to Christmas here, uh, were betrothed. To take her as your betrothed. Enter into that contractual agreement that you will marry her. And the only thing that can break that contractual agreement is immorality. It's going to look like she's been immoral, but she's not. She's a child with the Holy Spirit. She has not known a man. She is a virgin. And so keep your contractual agreement of betrothal. Don't put her away privately. This is more than our attitude of just take the ring off and throw it at him. Okay? That wasn't allowed back then. And so when Paul talks about betrothal, he's talking about something very significant. He says, you have identified yourself and entered into this contractual agreement that I am his bride. It will be culminated at the coming of Christ when we will enter into the marriage supper of the Lamb and we will be His and we will be with Him forever and ever. But now we are the betrothed. We are the ones who are Christ by the agreement of His shed blood. He has paid the bride's price. We are His. How dare we go off and sleep with someone else? with a different Jesus, with another gospel, with a different spirit. When you have been called into a relationship with Jesus. And Paul says, I was a matchmaker. Jesus wants you. You chose him. And now my job is to keep you for each other. I just happen to be one of you. And it is time we grasp that part of the job of ministry is to maintain a chaste virgin church for Christ. How will we be presented to Him? And if there is not a chaste virginity theologically, in our midst. If we aren't just one Jesus people, 
one spirit people, one gospel people, the real deal, then brethren, Christ will not accept us. Cannot. For he is a jealous God. He will not be shared, his bride, with other vagrants of emptiness and falsehood. And so, we are going to consider next week more of where this needs to, how we guard ourselves from this and talk about what simplicity is. But this morning, I want to just rant a little bit and throw out all these examples of what we're up against. That you be fully warned that this is not an exercise of ideology. This is real warfare. And God will measure its outcome. Who will you bear with? Those who want to teach you the truth with great spiritual nutritional value or those that are going to whet your appetite with delectables that have no value at all. They've been stripped clear of anything that will endure into eternity. I believe in our society we call them empty calories. In, in true Christianity, there are no empty calories. They all have value. Every exercise, even picking up your Bible and reading it, even if there's stuff you don't completely understand, those are not empty calories. I think somewhere in God's Word, He made a promise that His Word would not return void. That is empty or useless. If we spend time in His Word, that it'll have value. And you're not about to see me replace this with the story. But neither should we be replacing a lot of the truth of this book with the empty calories the world offers in churches today. Be warned. Question to you this morning is, what are you going to put up with? Because I don't think you can put up with both. I know God won't tolerate it. I try not to tolerate it. So you're going to have to choose before God's face of either putting up with those delicious but empty calories the world offers or the meaty truth of great nutritional value that God offers. You put up with one, or you will put up with the other. Let's pray.